Ho, 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 gentlemen. Get ready to jingle and deck your balls this holiday with the help from our friends over at Manscaped. The leaders in below-the-waist grooming have just launched their performance package 5.0 Ultra, but I like to call it the small gift for your big package. Featuring Santa's number one helper, the Lawnmower 5.0, Manscaped can guarantee you'll be stuffing more than just your stockings this holiday season. Let your ornaments shine and enjoy 20% off plus free shipping at manscaped.com with code HUDDYHISTORIAN. Mrs. Claus will thank you. Now, personally, I love the Performance Package 5.0 Ultra, which brings both value and comfort to the table. It comes with a lawnmower 5.0 Ultra hair trimmer, which comes in handy when I need to do a little bit of gardening around the yard, and I never have to worry about any nicks or cuts leaving me burned thanks to the Crop Soother Aftershave Lotion. Plus, there's nothing quite like slipping into the Boxers 2.0 After, which are comfortable and don't chafe like many of the popular brands do. This, along with their cooling technology, is something I can't go without, especially in the winter when you're bundled up to the nines in six layers of clothing every single day. And thanks to their sleek travel pouch, I can pack it all up and bring it with me to my next work conference or vacation spot, always knowing that feeling fresh is only a zip away. The Performance Package 5.0 Ultra is the one-stop shop for your holiday gifting perfection. Included is a trimmer as precise as Santa coming down the chimney. The Lawnmower 5.0 Ultra brings two next-gen blade heads, perfect for sculpting your holiday dew, from taming the chestnuts to grooming the tree. And trust us, it's as gentle as a snowflake on your sensitive bits, thanks to its skin-safe technology. Say goodbye to those holiday party crashers, nose and ear hairs. The Weed Whacker 2.0 Ear and Hair Nose Trimmer is the king for trimming those hairs trying to sneak into your festivities uninvited. Keep the party exclusive. But the fun doesn't stop there. Anybody in the family have too much scruff? Look no further than Manscaped Beard Hedger Pro Kit and Handyman Electric Face Shaver for all of his facial hair needs. Dad have nasty nose hairs? Save the day with the Weed Whacker 2.0 Nose and Ear Hair Trimmer. Is there boxer game week? Take care of the chestnuts with Manscaped's Boxers 2.0 featuring their signature jewel pouch to keep you calm, cool, and collected. Or, have their nails seen better days? Manscaped has you covered there too with their new Shears 3.0 Nail Grooming Kit. So get 20% off and free shipping with the code HUDDYHISTORIAN at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use the code HUDDYHISTORIAN, H-U-D-D-Y-H-I-S-T-O-R-I-A-N. Give the gift of Manscaped this holiday season. Episode 38, Capitulations and the Continental System. Welcome back, everyone. I hope you're all enjoying a festive holiday season with Hanukkah in full swing and Christmas and New Year right around the corner. Today, we're also going to be wrapping up another year, 1806, and talking about the Grand Armée's pursuit of the Prussian army through the countryside, while the Prussians suffer defeat after defeat after defeat, while Napoleon is busy contemplating how he can defeat Britain even if he can't fight them in battle. But hey, at least he'll be doing it in a nice Prussian castle. So, with that out of the way, let's dive right in. After the battles of Jena and Auerstedt, Frederick William, despite the state of his army and the low morale of his troops, refused to surrender, 
and he ordered his men to retreat to the northeast in the hopes of waiting out the pursuing French forces until the Russian reinforcements could arrive to turn the tide of the war. But Napoleon's Grand Armée, confident as ever, had other ideas. And while the generals had heard rumors of a potential ceasefire and peace being negotiated back in Paris, none came to pass, and the French continued their relentless pursuit of the Prussian army through the forests and hills of Saxony as they inched closer and closer to Berlin. Now such was their speed that the Prussians couldn't even have time to regroup and join with other forces, meaning that they were all largely isolated, fighting against a well-coordinated and fast-moving enemy force, something which will be a recurring theme throughout this episode. And in fact, before we dive any deeper, as a general disclaimer, there are going to be a lot of pitched battles and minor engagements throughout this episode, so I understand that there is going to be a little bit of confusion and we do some jumping around. But they were all important in the securing of Prussia for the French. And, well, they began immediately after the dust settled on the battlefield at Jena. Now to the west, Murat, who basically hadn't stopped riding since the end of Jena, mauled the fleeing Prussians and gave them no respite decimating their numbers and causing general chaos as they fled back deeper and deeper into the Prussian interior. Many of the soldiers in one army, some 12,000 in all, retreated west to Erfurt, but when they arrived at the city on October 15th, the residents of the city refused to open the gates. Now, Many of the Prussian soldiers also refused orders by their officers to rejoin the ranks, and when the city relented to their numbers and let them in, Murat was already on the outskirts of the town. Now, while some units stood in line for battle opposite Murat's cavalry, their backs were to the nearby Garrett River, and they decided to take cover back in the city. So from here, the Prussians attempted to order a coordinated retreat, but their commander, Vickard von Mullendorf, who had been wounded at Auerstedt, proved unable to carry out the task, and by the afternoon, the Prussians began to realize that they had no other option but to surrender. That evening, Mullendorf signed Murat's order of armistice and agreed to give up large quantities of ammunition and light guns. The capitulation of Erfurt now gave Napoleon better communication lines throughout the valley, and it also would become the first in what would be a cavalcade of Prussian capitulations over the course of the next month. And in fitting fashion, the next capitulation would come just a day later at the Saxon town of Hale. Now, there were a few units of the Prussian army that had yet to engage the French in the short time since the invasion began, but one such unit was the reserve guard under the command of Eugène, Duke of Wuttenberg. Now that would change rather quickly, as Marshal Bernadotte stumbled upon them at Hale. Now last we left Marshal Jean-Baptiste Bernadotte, he was busy not advancing on Auerstedt to assist Marshal Davout in his third corps, which resulted in a lifelong hatred between the two rival marshals and in Bernadotte further enmity from Napoleon. However, while Napoleon did consider a court-martial for Bernadotte, he didn't actually hear of his inaction at Auerstedt until days later, once the fog of the battle had settled and all the pieces were put together. Indeed, Bernadotte was still miles away from Napoleon on the morning of October 15th, and as a result, he sent Berthier to Bernadotte, with clear instructions this time, I would imagine, and ordered him and his first corps to march to the towns of Bad Bibra, Cufert, and Hale, northeast of Naumburg. Now, after two days of marching, Bernadotte received word that the Duke of Wuttenberg's rested, but untested, reserve guard was encamped at Hale, and he planned to attack them, preventing their reinforcement of other Prussian units, specifically at Magdeburg, which was soon to be under siege by Marshal Michel Ney, though we will get to that in a moment. On the morning of October 17, 1806, Bernadotte's first corps stormed into the city, pushing the Prussians back and moving them into positions which cut off their line to retreat. Bernadotte sent wave after wave and eventually overran them, including close quarters fighting in the town's market and city square. 
General Division and future Marshal Jean Drouet, eventually helped chase one of the regiments out of Hale and into the marshy swamps near the Elbe River, completely surrounding them and forcing their surrender. The Prussians, in dire need of all the reinforcements that they could get around the countryside, lost one of their most valuable assets west of the Elbe River. Suffering well over 5,000 casualties, compared to the 800 or so suffered by the French, and losing most of their guns, it was another critical defeat for the Prussians as they kept getting pushed further and further back to their capital city. The Duke of Württemberg's few remaining forces marched to Magdeburg, but as we mentioned, they wouldn't find much respite there either. A week later, with the road to Berlin now wide open, Napoleon waltzed into the Prussian capital as a conquering hero. Fifteen days after the Prussian campaign began, they took their beating heart just like that. Napoleon's entrance into Berlin, much like Vienna, was met with pomp, ahead of some 20,000 grenadiers and cuirassiers in full-dress uniform. Though the French capture of Berlin was so quick, there was little time for the city to ready itself for the occasion. Indeed, many of the local businesses were unprepared for the French emperor entering their capital, and it was reported that many of the characters of Napoleon still adorned the city's streets as the Grand Armée marched right through them. But Napoleon was sure to get the last laugh. He ordered monuments seized and returned to Paris, including the victory chair at Quadriga that sat atop the Brandenburg Gate, which you can see in the episode's cover art. Indeed, Napoleon was one of the first to use the gate for a triumphal procession, something which echoed out to the days of the Roman triumphs 800 years earlier. And in fact, it wouldn't be until after Napoleon's defeat at Leipzig in 1814 that the Quadriga was returned to Berlin and where it remains to this day. Now, Napoleon's entrance into Berlin in such rapid succession was a devastating blow to the Prussian morale, and it was an embarrassment for their military, which proved to be nothing more than a paper tiger. Indeed, on their retreat from Berlin to the northeast, their generals, vowing to never have the city fall again, would begin to implement reforms to the entire military apparatus. An army forged by Frederick the Great only 50 years earlier was now at the mercy of her eternal enemy. Now, speaking of Frederick, the significance of the French presence in Berlin was not lost on Napoleon, and he visited the tomb of the former king of Prussia to pay his respects. Recounting Frederick's pivotal role in Prussia's victory at the Battle of Rosbach 49 years earlier over the French, Napoleon famously remarked to his generals overlooking the tomb, quote, Hats off, gentlemen. If this man were alive today, none of us would be standing here now. Now, for all intents and purposes, the fall of Berlin would mark the end of the Prussian army as an effective, cohesive fighting force for 1806, and, well, really for the majority of the War of the Fourth Coalition, with the Russians and Swedes now needing to pick up the majority of the slack in the coming months. Having said that, there were still pockets of resistance, and the French were not out of the woods yet, as there were still Prussian losses and embarrassments to come. Oh, so many losses and embarrassments to come. The day after Berlin fell, the French confirmed that a Prussian army was stationed at Magdeburg under the command of Hohenlohe, and Magdeburg was heavily fortified, and with its position on the left bank of the Elbe River, it was of critical strategic importance. With the Grand Armée in full pursuit of the Prussians all throughout the countryside of the northeast, taking Magdeburg essentially meant taking the entire western half of Prussia. Marshal Michel Ney, under the orders of Napoleon, was to besiege the city and force its surrender with the remaining 26,000 or so troops stationed, well, or rather trapped there. But just as Ney's siege began, Hohenlohe delegated command to his general of infantry, Franz von Kleist, telling him to hold the city 
while he set off for the Oda River to the northeast under the order of King Frederick William, the thinking being that they would reach safety behind the riverbanks and await the oncoming Russians. Indeed, Frederick William had ordered the remainder of his armies to make for the Oder in the hopes that they would be able to regroup and plan a future counterattack, but, well, that didn't exactly happen. Now, following numerous skirmishes and minor battles over the next week, including the fall of the fortress of Spandau on October 25th, Murat finally caught up to Hohenlohe at Prenzlau on the so-called Berlin Highway on the morning of October 28th. Now, amid, shocking I know, confusion of the Prussian War Council, Murat concocted a brilliant ruse in which he sent a French captain with a white flag of truce to Hohenlohe with the demand of the Prussian surrender, stating that Murat had a 30,000-strong army at his disposal, with an additional 60,000 approaching under the command of Marshal Jean Lang. Now, with Prussian forces only at around 12,000, this was an overwhelming force for them to have to deal with. But it wasn't true. Not by a long shot. Indeed, Murat commanded similar numbers, but the delay allowed time for Murat to instruct his troops on a flawless battle plan. And after he gave the order, his troops cut the Prussian army into pieces, with many of the Prussian units fleeing into Prenzlau for cover. The French then moved to cut off their routes of retreat, and Murat demanded Hohenlohe's surrender once again, which he also refused. But when sights of Long's infantry units began to arrive, Hohenlohe then reconsidered. And after Murat again lied on his honor that Hohenlohe was to be surrounded by close to 100,000 men, Hohenlohe begrudgingly agreed to surrender, with all soldiers except for the officers being taken as prisoners of war. Hohenlohe had been duped into surrender and his capitulation at Prenzlau severely hampered the escape routes of other Prussian generals who were trying to regroup to the northeast, most notably Blücher, who commanded Hohenlohe's rearguard and had to swing his columns to the northwest and march on Lübeck, where he would also encounter Murat and Bernadotte a week later. But Hohenlohe's surrender was an utter embarrassment for the Prussians, even in the context of a litany of such instances, because it really didn't need to happen. What's more is that the Prussians likely could have won the battle had Hohenlohe continued on with his intended plan, and it also likely could have saved additional units in the northeast. But alas, it was not meant to be, and the Prussian prince was tricked into a surrender he never wanted to give. Prenzlau's fall led to more dominoes coming down in the following days. Passawak to the north of Prenzlau capitulated the next day, and Stettin, on the left bank of the Oder, surrendered on the 30th. Now, Stettin was also infamous for another French ruse, this time by the young hussar general Antoine Charles-Louis, Comte de La Salle. Now, La Salle's career is fascinating in its own right, and he would become famous in French history for his daring charges in the battle. But it was his bluff on the night of October 30th, 1806, that gained him legend in French military lore. Approaching the fortress at Stettin, La Salle was ready to attack the fort, but because he led the advance guard of about 500 men, his troops had arrived earlier than the rest of the division, so he decided to pull a Murat and try a bluff instead. He called out to the Prussian general, Friedrich von Romberg, that either he surrender in good order or that Lassalle would launch an attack on the fort. When Romberg replied predictably that he would not, Lassalle famously barked back, quote, If by 8 a.m. you have not surrendered, the town will be bombarded by our artillery, stormed by 50,000 men, the garrison will be put to the sword, and the town will be plundered during 24 hours. Romberg, faced with the uh, threat of 50,000 men bearing down on his small force of just over 5,000, agreed to surrender the fort without a shot being fired. 
all of the Prussians were taken prisoner, and they surrendered their 280 guns to the French. With its capitulation, the only Prussian army left in the field was that under the command of Blücher, who was now being pursued heavily by Murat and Bernadotte. Now, over the next few days, the Grande Armée would clean the rest of the river valley up of any small Prussian garrisons north of Berlin. Bernadotte headed west in pursuit of Blücher, and had received information that he was stationed at the upcoming town of Warren. Bernadotte wanted to encircle the Prussians there and annihilate Blücher's force, essentially dealing a death knell to the entire main Prussian army. But the Prussians would finally win the day. Blücher left Warren early in the morning on November 1st, and he would evade French capture. Bernadotte's cavalry was then ordered in to attack, but the Prussians, under General Ludwig York, stood their ground and allowed for the eventual successful escape of the town, particularly impressive since they were outnumbered nearly 3 to 1. Also helping their cause was that York's division was one of the few that did not see action in the Jena campaign, thus their morale was not nearly as low as some of those in other divisions. Nevertheless, they were successful, and this was the first, and only, Prussian victory in the fall and winter of 1806. Bernadotte was again chastised for his performance, but he continued his pursuit of Blücher, and five days later, he would find him at Lübeck. Now, as we mentioned, after Hohenlohe's disaster at Prenzlau, his rearguard commanded by Blücher was blocked from reaching the Oder River, and he stopped and turned west, hoping to avoid being completely enveloped by the chasing armies of Murat, Bernadotte, and Soult. Now, following the capitulations of the fortress cities, Blücher's troops fought numerous rearguard engagements with the pursuing French forces. Though valiantly fought and showing glimpses of his military brilliance that would make him a thorn in the French side in the upcoming wars, Blücher's forces were badly outmanned and were losing men by the day with the nonstop harassment by the French marshals. Further adding to their precarious position was that they were running dangerously low on food and ammunition, so Blücher decided to head for the neutral city-state of Lübeck, further west, to gather see loot, additional supplies, as well as to link up with the garrison of Swedish troops stationed there, who had recently arrived via Denmark. Now, Lübeck, situated in Schleswig-Holstein in modern-day northern Germany, was just south of the Danish border, but at the time, it was part of the Hanseatic League, which operated as a quasi-confederation of defensive and economic interests amongst northern European states and towns. These states were supposed to be neutral, however, and when it was reported that Blücher's men were approaching the town, the thought of having two foreign armies stationed within their city walls sent shivers down the citizens' spine because they knew the French would take that as a breach of their neutrality and thus leave them open for attack. Further adding to their anxiety was that the Danes to the north were also mobilizing as they made it known that any army attempting to enter or seek refuge in Denmark, which is what Blücher was trying to do in all likelihood, would be engaged in battle. Basically, on the eve of November 5th, 1806, there were about four or five national armies readying for an all-out battle of nations, small b, small n, for those who got the joke. Now, as expected, Blücher's men arrived at Lübeck on November 5th, tired, starving, and with little morale. Upon entering the city, Blücher demanded food and ammunition for his troops, but he promised that his army would not fight in the city. With the French in full pursuit, however, Blücher could not make the same promise for his enemies, and so he set up defensive positions around the city to protect his flanks. Lübeck was situated in between the convergence of the Wakanitz and the Trave rivers, and was heavily fortified with walls and natural defenses that made attacking the city difficult. Unfortunately, many of the walls were in a state of dilapidation in 1806, except for a number of large gates that would be ideal locations for heavy artillery. 
That night, Blucher did just that and stacked guns and infantry divisions at each of the gates, including the most important northern gate, known as the Bergtor, as it overlooked the narrow strip of land that entered the city between both rivers. In command of the Bergtor was Frederick William, yes, another one, Duke of Brunswick, who gained infamy by his nickname as the Black Duke for leading the Prussian Brigade known as the Black Brunswickers during the Napoleonic Wars, distinguishable by their all-black uniforms and ruthless fighting style. In any event, when it became clear that Blücher was reneging on his promise to not fight in the city, some of Lübeck's councilmen approached him to remind Blücher of his earlier pledge to not wage a full-blown battle there. Blücher, though, basically told him to bug off and that it was too late for negotiations. His die had been cast. As midnight passed, at 2 a.m. on November 6th, the first engagement of the Battle of Lübeck took place. Bernadotte, still commanding his first corps, encountered a Prussian force east of the city, enveloped it, and forced their surrender. After confirming the position of Blücher and his men inside the town, the battle plan was laid out. Bernadotte and his advance guard would push in through the north gate, while Sioux and Murat would take the southern approach across the Wankinitz River and enter the city, essentially circling and trapping the entire Prussian contingent inside. In total, the Prussians and Swedes totaled just short of 20,000 men, while the French were marauding their way up the river valley with some 40,000 men and 90 guns. As dawn broke, the fighting began in earnest. The French assault began in the south, with Murat and Sewell clashing with the regiment of Prussian hussars and chasing them back into the city. Hearing the shouts of their retreating countrymen, the Prussian gunners at the southern gate began firing back on the French, repulsing their surge, but Sewell ordered his cannons into position, and soon there was a heavy exchange of artillery fire into the city. About 20 minutes later, Bernadotte's men approached from the north with his advance guard, and he had his cannons positioned on a nearby hill east of the Bergtor in order to open fire on the Prussian position. Bernadotte then ordered his left, right, and center to descend on the town, but they were repulsed after an initial thrust. However, after wounding their commander, the Prussian order began to disintegrate, and the French would then pound enemy positions and inflict heavy losses. Hampering the Prussian effort was the fact that Brunswick left the Bergtor to supervise the battle from the Trave's west bank. By the early afternoon, the French left and right were beginning to close the gap on the northern entrance, and by 1 p.m., the Prussian line broke completely, and they fled back into the city, pursued heavily by Bernadotte's men. Bernadotte also ordered some of his troops to boat across the trade and secure both banks, cutting off any line of retreat to the north. With the seemingly impenetrable Bergtor now breached, Lubeck would become the site of brutal urban warfare. Now, Blücher, meanwhile, was completely oblivious to what was going on in the north, and, believing that the post was secure, retired to a local inn. As he was readying his orders, he noticed a group of French skirmishers in the street outside of the inn, and he quickly gathered his staff to flee the city, barely escaping with his son, but many of his staff ended up being captured. As Murat and Soult breached the southern gate, the Prussians were squeezed into the small city center, and vicious street fighting took place, including outside of St. Mary's Church in the Market Square. Blücher tried in vain to rescue his staff, but was unsuccessful and ended up retreating, going across the Trave and safely escaping French capture. The same could not be said, however, for the rest of the Prussian army at Lübeck. By the late afternoon, the French were in firm control of the city, and a few units were even sent after Blücher, chasing him back to the countryside. But even with Lübeck secured, the French were not done with their slaughter. Now, some sources do vary on the severity, but... Even among French historians, the Grand Armée's pillaging of Lübeck following its capitulation was nothing short of pure brutality. 
Robbery, rape, and murder was a scene all over the city, to the point where even Bernadotte tried to physically stop some of his men with his sword to prevent them from entering private residences and stripping the place clean. Nevertheless, it was to no avail, and it was rumored that the cries from the city's residents could be heard on the banks of the Trey by Blücher's forces as the night wore on. When the morning sunlight rose, and with the prospect of being annihilated by a total force of over 35,000 French troops, Blücher requested terms of surrender. He was required to surrender his entire army, just short of 10,000 men, including the Swedish contingent, as well as all of their guns. In his formal surrender, he famously wrote, quote, I capitulate, since I have neither bread nor ammunition. Blücher. It was an overwhelming, albeit brutal, French victory, and one that Blücher would not soon forget. And I spent a lot of time discussing it because it was here at Lübeck that Marshal Bernadotte likely began his descent into full-blown treason, as he caught the eye of captured Swedish colonel Count Gustav Myrner. Now, Myrner was so impressed with Bernadotte's kind treatment of him as a prisoner of war, up to and including allowing him to use his personal tent as a headquarters, that he never forgot the young marshal. And when opportunity struck with the vacancy of the Swedish line of succession just over three years later, well, let's just say that this simple act of kindness played a pivotal role in French Marshal Jean-Baptiste Bernadotte becoming King Charles XIV John, of Sweden and Norway. Now, while all of these battles and fortresses capitulations were going on, the last fortress city to hold out was Magdeburg, who was putting up a spirited, albeit futile, resistance. Back at Magdeburg, Marshal Ney, who commanded just short of 20,000 troops, knew that he was outmanned, but he did occupy both sides of the Elba and thus had an excellent position for the city's besiegement. For the next two weeks, Ney would order bombardment and light skirmishers to weaken the Prussian positions and secure the city. Kleist's men, faced with complete encirclement and the understanding that their supply situation would become dire, eventually relented, and the city was taken on November 11th following some minor skirmishes and bombardments. Despite their spirited defense, the Prussians capitulated here too. The French suffered few casualties while the entire Prussian force and 700 artillery pieces were captured. The entirety of Western Prussia was now in firm French control, just over a month into their campaign, and in the words of historian Richard Brooks, the first month of the War of the Fourth Coalition, quote, epitomized the peak of Napoleonic warfare, with the French managing to capture around 150,000 soldiers and over 2,000 cannons before the end of 1806. So... I know that was a lot of action, and we certainly did leave Napoleon out of it for a little bit here, but I think it is important to note just how quickly, and at times brutally, Napoleon's marshals were able to force the Prussians back further east and north, basically taking control of their entire country in just over a month when they were once regarded as one of, if not the most formidable army in all of Europe. Now, there would be a few more minor engagements before the year ended, but for now, we're going to go back to Berlin and check in on Napoleon as he prepares for the Russian arrival, his plan to counter the British naval supremacy, and Poland? Yes, there is still quite a bit to cover before we head into 1807. Now, backing up to late October, Napoleon made his headquarters at Frederick William's Charlottenburg Palace, adding yet another insult to injury in their war against Prussia. Napoleon received daily correspondences from his marshals in the field, and seeing as how the Prussian positions were dropping like flies, Bonaparte extended an offer of peace to Frederick William on the condition that he essentially become his vassal and allow the French to use Prussia as a staging ground for their fight against the oncoming Russians. 
Now, Frederick William did actually contemplate accepting the offer, but as he was one to do, he was easily swayed against it by his war council, who were still bitterly opposed to anything Napoleon put forth, considering they couldn't stand the thought of constantly losing to him. So the war continued, and Frederick William and his war council retreated to Konigsberg, the modern-day Russian exclave of Kaliningrad, on the Baltic Sea. Furthermore, many of the defeated Prussian armies retreated further east into what was then called New East Prussia, but what is today Northwest Poland, and Napoleon spotted a great opportunity to gain a new ally at the expense of two major enemies. Now, I don't have time to get into the entire history of Poland, but I do think it's pretty common knowledge that the country has been fought over, carved up, and conquered throughout its entire history, really, up until the last 30 years in the end of the Cold War. Its strategic location, fertile lands, and a, quote, bridge of empires, has meant that, unfortunately, much of its history has been defined by conflict, and the years prior to and during the French Revolution and rise of Napoleon were no different. In October of 1795, while Napoleon was busy dealing with 13 Bondemir and his whiff of grape shot, Poland, then known as Poland-Lithuania, was partitioned for the third time between Prussian, Austria, and Russia. Now, this event essentially ended Polish sovereignty until after World War I, but the Poles were not ones to take their subjugation quietly, and pockets of fierce Polish nationalism led to brutal uprisings and reprisals over the next 125 years and, well, beyond. Now, Napoleon who employed thousands of Poles in his Grand Armée to begin with, encouraged these uprisings further in the Polish interior as a way to weaken the Prussians and Russians, as well as to keep the Austrians out of the conflict lest they risk an uprising of their own. Poland was also to be the stage of the second half of the War of the Fourth Coalition, something which we would touch on next episode as we wrap up the war, but Napoleon moved Davout into the territory to begin to build roads, canals, and bridges in order to better facilitate a French campaign in the harsh and unforgiving terrain during the dead of winter. And while Napoleon always commanded the respect and admiration of his men, many of his soldiers, now nearing 100,000 strong with additional reinforcements arriving daily from France, were none too pleased that they needed to continue on a campaign in the harsh Eastern European winter while they had taken the Prussian capital in a matter of days. But Napoleon wanted to crush the Russians once and for all, believing that in doing so, he could teach the young Tsar Alexander the lesson he failed to learn at Auschwitz only a year earlier. And so, as the second anniversary of Napoleon's imperial coronation approached, he readied his troops for their harshest march yet, some 1,200 miles from Paris, into the freezing cold abyss of one of the poorest and most underdeveloped regions in all of Europe. But before they moved forward with their march into western Poland, Napoleon shifted his attention back to Britain. While technically still at war with the French, the British did not want to send their troops into battle so far from home when they felt they didn't really need to. They were perfectly content with bleeding France dry by engaging her naval blockade and economic warfare outside of the continent, straining France's coffers as well as limiting much of the food and New World exports she could take in, something which Napoleon feared was a huge threat to France's long-term financial stability. But one benefit Napoleon had was that his rapid-fire conquest of Austria and Prussia over the previous two years meant that much of their money in the banks went directly back to the Bank of France, amongst valuable arts, treasures, artifacts, and the like. So Napoleon decided to turn the tide on the British in a similar fashion by blockading them from the European continent. On November 21, 1806, Napoleon issued his Berlin Decrees, which were an intended response to the British Order and Council of May of 1806, ordering the blockade of the French mainland. 
The decrees stated the following. Number one, the British Isles are in a state of blockade. Number two, all trade and all correspondence with the British Isles is forbidden. Number three, every British subject of whatever state or condition he may be will be made a prisoner of war. Number four, all warehouses, all merchandise, all property of whatever nature it might be belonging to a subject of England will be declared a valid prize. And finally, number five, no ship coming directly from England or the English colonies or having been there since the publication of the present decree will be received in any port. Now, these decrees would lead to the implementation of the famous continental system, and they were intended to cut Britain off to her largest economic trading partners on the continent. Napoleon would ensure that any states loyal to him complied, lest they be subject to brutal reprisals of their own. As he wrote to his brother Louis, he wanted to, quote, conquer the sea through the power of the land. Further decrees in 1807 would reinforce the points above, but for all intents and purposes, as the year 1806 came to a close, Napoleon put forth a new economic order on continental Europe. If we cannot trade by sea, Britain will not trade by land. Now, I'm going to devote an entire supplemental episode to the continental system so that we can discuss its effects on the British, the French, as well as the rest of Europe, but suffice it to say, the results were mixed. The British were cut off from Europe, yes, but they were also able to expand their economic portfolio to other markets, and their alliance with Portugal, who openly refused to join the system on the Atlantic Ocean, meant that they found ways to skirt the blockade entirely. And this, of course, was a major driver behind the French decision to invade Portugal a year later in November of 1807, beginning what would become known as the Peninsular War. Now, as for the French, well, the blockade had the opposite effect, as it also kept her from trading with outside markets, and it led to even further hostility amongst her allies, who soon began to feel the pinch in their wallets as well. Many industries in France suffered, including shipbuilding, which required supplies from overseas, and thus it further hampered Napoleon's dream of rebuilding his prized navy. Food prices also skyrocketed in most of Europe, as the French had to use land-based trade routes rather than the faster ones of the Mediterranean Sea or Atlantic Ocean. And, well, of course, the most famous event was Russia leaving the system, which led to Napoleon's invasion of Russia, which, well, we'll talk about that a little later on. And so, we'll leave it here for today. Next week, just in time for Christmas, we'll move on to 1807 and talk about the end of the War of the Fourth Coalition, where even in victory, the Grand Armée began to show some cracks that gave the Coalition hope that someday, down the road, they would be able to defeat the man who seemed to be covering the map of Europe in French blue. <laughs>